1: Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on today's show of a very special guest. His name is Corey Hughes. His website, if you're watching on YouTube, is his full name dot O-R-G. So C-O-R-Y-H-U-G-H-E-S dot O-R-G.
0: And he's been doing a
1: lot of research into JFK. And I've been doing a lot. I've had a lot of guests about JFK or the 60s. So I've talked to Joseph McBride about and Political it. Truth, his book, who's a very noted JFK researcher Philip Nelson, who knows a lot about Johnson, who's involved in this story. I've also had Chuck Acelli, who was a fact who's also known as the blind JFK researcher. And then I've also had Lisa Peace, who did uh, a book about a lot too big to fail about the RFK. That's right. Ties into this. So I've had been very fortunate to have really world class experts I've been talking to. So you can go back and listen to those shows if you're interested in the subject, uh, but Corey reached out to me because I had Walter Herbst on, who I've done two shows with, about the background leading up to the assassination. His books are superbly well-researched, I think, and I'm I've learned <laughs> they're just unraveling this onion or this complex puzzle, wilderness of mirrors, intentional wilderness of mirrors, leading even leading up to the JFK and after it, so... Uh, Corey reached out to me and said hey i've done a lot of research he has a seven part documentary on his website seven hour documentary sorry which i didn't get through but he sent me something which i think ties into my conversation with walter herbs which is the strange tale which uh of lee harvey oswald and he has a did an hour and a half show and so i listened to th- through that and i thought it would be a great topic so i'd like to go back and watch the seven hour documentary when i have time." But anyway so corey can talk more about that so corey hughes welcome to the show
0: hey thanks for having me on
1: awesome so for people who may not have heard i know you've done a lot of interviews elsewhere you've done a a lot of research into jfk maybe you can talk about your background how you got interested in jfk and then this specific story about the multiple Oswalds.
0: sure uh so i was a cop for about eight and a half years Uh, I was a crime scene investigator. I have degrees in public administration, crime scene investigation, and uh, law enforcement technology. And so my my background was in actual investigations. And so when I really decided to go mostly full-time into Kennedy back in July of 2018, um, I pretty much set out on a mission to figure out what happened because I just could not accept any longer that this has been almost 60 years and there's 5 million pages of documents and nobody still knows what the hell happened i just didn't seem feasible and so i basically spent 3 years putting in 12 hour days every day of the week um I like an obsession i just needed to know and along the way i discovered a lot of things that were seemingly obvious that hadn't been kind of discovered before um particularly one of the, my first big uh discoveries was unraveling the mystery of the winterland ice arena uh, it's allegedly where David Ferry had gone ice skating uh, with Melvin coffee and Alvin Boboof um, I pretty much dismantled that entire incident figured out who owned the Winterland who ran the winterland all the connections um, back to the CIA and so yeah that kind of uh, got me excited that there was actually uh, there was some meat left on this bone right there was still room for uh, big conclusions to be made, and uh, I was in the mindset to make these discoveries. And so, yeah, that's kind of how well, I did, got into it.
1: Right. And there's been so many other conclusions. Right. Mob did it. Israelis did it. CIA did it. Johnson. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different researchers who have come up with different stories, and there's a lot of missing disinformation. I talked to another guest whose name I can't remember. We talked about that in the JFK research community about some less than people with. Uh, spe- a lot of speculation, or maybe not have the truthful motives in putting together their works. So. Right.
0: So when people lay the blame at the mob or the CIA or whoever, um, what it tells me is they don't understand the global power structure that these organizations work within. Um, so and really it all goes back to the end of World War II and the uh post-war deal between Reinhard Galen, who was Adolf Hitler's spy master and the top general in the in the German army. Uh, he cuts a deal with Alan Dulles and the OSS. Um, also in on this deal are Ben-Gurion and the pre-Israeli Zionists. And so they kind of form this um, kind of a unofficial organization because it's between the OSS and between the when, the when the OSS ended and the CIA launched in 47. You know, you have two years that go largely undocumented, but in those two years, they were awfully busy. Uh, in those two years, they fundamentally created the framework for the security state that we live under today, Reinhard Galen is the architect of the 17 intelligence agencies that came into existence in 1947. Uh, it was his brain. NATO is his brainchild, and so um, these are relationships that people can continually ignore when they look into Kennedy. And so then you want just look for
1: at- people to know, Reinhard Galen's spy network was all focused on Russia, so he had all that stuff. So. Once the war ended and people twisted the Iron Curtain speech by Churchill, the interest of the Intel was focused towards Russia. So they wanted to have those inroads. So that's how the Galen Org got put into it with the the, the whole uh, Operation Paperclip. So these Nazi doctors really did come to the United States. Yes, did, but see, think, besides was... um,
0: besides Paperclip, you had an uh, operation before that where. Uh, it was agreed upon that Dulles and the and the what would be the CIA would end up funneling out of Europe and North Africa over 230,000 Nazis into South America, and that's kind of uh, what it's went a on. Huge to, um, it's, it's massive, and so it, it's just so hypocritical that we were on one hand storming the beaches at Normandy to free uh, the world of these uh, damn Germans, and yet we're funneling the worst of the worst of them out of the country into South America because they thought that they knew they needed the next war. The cold war was on the horizon and they basically flipped these people uh, to become um, warriors against the Soviets. Right. And so, but then uh, also there's the relationship between the U S mafia and the government, which goes back to world war two in the forties uh, and uh, Bugsy Siegel and uh, the, you know, Luciano. the, doc, right. And Luciano and the Docks in New York. And so, But you also have a relationship between the pre-Israeli Zionists and the United States Mafia, which all began in 1946 uh, with a meeting between Mickey Cohen, I'm sorry, with Bugsy Siegel, and with a guy named Reuven Daphne, who was an emissary of the Haganah. So that is kind of what jumped off the relationship between the Israelis and the United States Mafia, which the reality is, post-1931, after they took out Joe Masseria and uh, Salvatore Maranzano, most people look that to the look to the mob as be having been like a Sicilian Italian organization, right? But the reality is that Meyer Lansky controlled the mob post 1931. Uh, Luciano and these guys were front bosses for Meyer Lansky, who was kind of dubbed the mob's accountant. But when you study the life of Meyer Lansky, that guy built the mob into what it was by the time uh, Kennedy was killed. And so you have like a, a rock solid relationship between the Israelis and the United States mafia controlled by Meyer Lansky. Um, and then you have the relationship with the United States government between all three. So these three organizations, organizations—the basically the Mossad, the mafia, and the CIA, uh, by 1963 are one organization. They are lock and step with each other. You've even got mob hitmen going down to uh, the keys to train CIA hitmen, you know? So uh, the relationship is is solid there. And so, when people try to blame one or the other, they don't understand that they're still in 1963 one organization that didn't change until the late 1970s, uh, when Meyer Lansky went on the run and the relationship shifted back to the Sicilian control of the mafia.
1: And they were all involved in drug uh, drug running, Mm -hmm. uh, Jack Ruby, but also gun running to Israel. So there was all they were involved in a lot of transnational. Movie. Oh yeah, Ruby himself was definitely a mobster. I think that's
0: Ruby was definitely a mobster, and he. I mean, he came up originally. They say under Al Capone, um, but when you look at who was really doing what in Chicago, uh, you have Giancana, uh, but Giancana didn't run the show in Chicago. Uh, a guy named Hyman Larner actually ran the Chicago mob. He was Jewish. He was a direct associate of Meyer Lansky. So all of these Italian bosses had a, 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 a were front bosses for. Uh, either Meyer Lansky, Hyman Larner, and it was about a dozen, a dozen other of these Jewish mobsters who really pulled the strings behind the scenes. Right, and
1: Jack Ruby. For people who don't know, it's Jacob Rubenstein. That's his Jewish name. Correct. So, um, yeah. So, and I mean, his story—it's it's such a complex story. I mean, but it brings in all of that underground surfaced in September twenty-second, nineteen sixty-two. So there's a buildup to it.
0: Yeah, and you, and so you also have, and just to touch on Jack Ruby really quickly, a lot of the actions that people attribute to Jack Ruby were not Jack Ruby either. Uh, Jack Ruby had a brother who was about ten months younger than him, uh, who had lived in Dallas for two years leading up to the assassination. His name was Samuel Ruby, and he owned a series of washateria's, like do-it-yourself laundry places. Um, that becomes relevant when it connects to Sylvia Odio later on. But um, the reality is. Jack Ruby's brother was almost identical to Jack Ruby. No one ever talks about Samuel Ruby. Uh, And Samuel Ruby was most certainly the person photographed in the hallway at the police department. Mm -hmm. And he was most certainly the person at the midnight press conference. That was not Jack Ruby. Jack Ruby left Dallas after the assassination to go to Galveston. So yes, um, this is all about, and you have to notice, um, Jack Ruby made it onto television four times in a 24 hour period, all right? So um, that was purely, establishing an alibi for Jack because he went down to Galveston for reasons I'm still working on. Gotcha. (laughs) But in this
1: backdrop, this young person who dies at 24 shot by Jack Ruby, Jacob Rubenstein probably was led into the police office to kill him as he was being transported to the car. He had to die. Oswald had an incredible life for somebody who didn't really know his dad. His dad died. According to the fact, you got to look at everything because this is a huge Intel, you know, uh, influenced event. But his dad supposedly died of a heart attack at 39 years old, or very young. Yeah, I'm, I think I'm in 1939,
0: so he's he never really fishy about that. him. Uh, Robert Lee Oswald is something I just I just don't buy the official story on him. All the pictures that are shown of him actually look like a guy named Jay Walton Moore. Um, so it's it's really strange uh, when you dig into the ident- the real identities of these people. Uh, because in the CIA, everyone has multiple identities. You know, it's it's crazy,
1: and they all have multiple nicknames. They have even Oswald had multiple names, so it gets really confusing. People are impersonating Oswald, who's impersonating multiple people. So you see this. It's it's not happenstance. There's something very sophisticated happening around Oswald, but according to the story, which is a, the the intelligence term would be legend, which is when you go back and I think you proved in your research if i remember correctly in your thing that his oswald's past was fixed post-death but not fixed properly right so
0: there are a lot of even about that yes there's a lot of incidents in that he is alleged to have participated in that there just are just problems when you dig into the actual documents and what was alleged to have happened and who was there and the witnesses and their statements and everything attached to it you find that everything oswald is alleged to have done he didn't do uh, if he did it, it would be clear-cut evidence. People would uh, have the they would have documents uh, that didn't have conflicting information on it. Like let's let's talk about uh, the uh, Mexico City trip. This one, uh, a lot of people for some reason still believe that Oswald went to Mexico City. Uh, there's no possibility he went to Mexico City. So uh, he allegedly got on a bus on the 25th of September at 1:45 p.m and crossed the border into Mexico on the 26th and arrived at 10 a.m. on the 27th in Mexico City. So there are numerous problems here. The first problem is that uh, the FBI attempted to suppress some information, some documents that were given to them by a uh, an informant. And the when you read about Oswald and his PO box in New Orleans and when it was closed, all they ever say is it was closed in September, of 1963, but the actual date that it was closed by Oswald, and I believe it was by Oswald because it was such a great attempt to hide these documents that were uncovered by Harold Weisberg um, is that he was supposed to have been on the bus the 26th crossing into Mexico but he was actually in New Orleans where he submitted two documents to the post office closing out his PO box. So uh, if it was not Oswald, they wouldn't have gone to such uh, great lengths to try to suppress that information. So whenever I see an, uh, uh, just an overt attempt uh, from the FBI or the CIA or whomever to withhold documents, uh, it becomes clear that the, that is very relevant. So uh, whenever you see documents that disappear and don't turn up until like the late 70s or the 80s, you know there's something very relevant in them.
1: Um, and it happens all throughout this whole case, right? Oh, yeah. documents are delayed, the Zapruder film is delayed, or somebody owns mm-hmm. it, it doesn't come out. So there's all this slow rolling going on. Even till today, the so-called documents that were gonna be let out, they just pushed them back even further, right? So there's still right. people influenced, there's still people maintaining that story that Oswald was the shooter.
0: Yeah, it's it's utterly ridiculous. And I will go as far as to say, I don't believe that Oswald was even there that day at the book depository. Mm-hmm. Um, I hesitate to think that he even worked there. When you go through the statements uh, of everyone who worked in that building, Uh, about that day, about half the people who worked in that building had never seen Oswald until he turned up on television, including O.V. Campbell, who was the boss of the book depository, had never seen Oswald until he showed up on TV. So that to me is easily explained by someone else working in that building as Oswald, whom was identified as Oswald. um, Because you have to think in the 1960s, if uh, a lot of these incidents with Oswald, somebody will see him one time, it'll be three months before the assassination. They'll have no reason to think about him again until he's on television. And then they see his picture on television, which in all those uh, in 1963, they were all grainy, black and white. And so it's very e- it was very easy for them to slip in substitutes, uh, particularly Kerry Thornley and William Seymour uh, in, in most in the majority of places that we think Oswald actually was. Uh, And then when the person sees them, they see someone of a similar build, similar height, similar haircut. And the person had usually given the name of Oswald or talked about communism or something ridiculous to leave a trail, right? So uh, they went all over the place, leaving little bits of information with people. Uh, There was one incident in Baton Rouge where Oswald allegedly went with Marina to go look at an apartment. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, they go look at this apartment and the lady says um, she wasn't sure if he was serious about renting the apartment and all he seemed to do was talk about communism, right? So they went out of their way to plant these little seeds, uh, of information in people's minds. And then when they see him on television, it's like, Hey, I think that's the guy who came and saw me about my apartment three months ago. Right? So it was back then it was very easy to do. We didn't, they didn't have social media. They didn't have people's pictures plastered all over the place. Like we do today. Uh, today it's this stuff would have been impossible to pull off today. Uh, but not back then. I mean, your driver's license didn't even have your picture on it. So it was very easy to do these identity swaps. And, but uh, his
1: identity, I mean, maybe we can go back to the very beginning, because you talk about his dual records, the dual records of Oswald back in New York City mm-hmm. in Brooklyn or something like yeah, that, right?
0: Yeah, uh, 19, John Armstrong. And every time I talk about Oswald, I kind of have to talk about John Armstrong, because he came up with but the- Can you heartbeat. bring up
1: Weisberg to who he was? Because I'm Yeah, Weisberg. sure. Um,
0: so uh, on John Armstrong, he came out with the idea that there were actually- two children living under the name Lee Harvey Oswald, starting at a time around 1947 and lasting up until the assassination. A lot of the information he has uncovered proves beyond all doubt that there were, in fact, two different sets of children and a mother, Marguerite Oswald. There was a duplicate Marguerite Oswald, and the pictures are clearly two different women when you look at all of them. Um, But he uncovered this information, uh, and the data that he gathered was phenomenal. uh, But the conclusions... That he drew post uh, the defection to the Soviet Union really just fall apart uh, because he did not, he never saw outside the scope of there's a duplicate Oswald. So all duplicate Oswald sightings have to be because of this other Oswald. That wasn't the case at all. By 1960, um, Hoover was aware that somebody had been using Oswald's identity uh, and possibly he suggested maybe they had his birth certificate. So Hoover was aware of Oswald. Uh, long before, three years before the assassination. And so when you get into 1961, um, you start, Oswald is still not back yet. He's not back until I think June of uh, 62. But in 61, you have a lot of activity in New Orleans of people uh, giving the name of Lee Oswald, who they all say matched the description of Lee Oswald, uh, doing various things like going to the Bolton Ford dealership and attempting to buy a number of uh, trucks, for the Friends of Democratic Cuba. And so here we have in in, in 1961, we have someone trying to buy these trucks uh, using the name of Oswald, but they're also dropping the name of the Friends of Democratic Cuba, which was an organization that was being run uh, for the most part by Sergio Arcacha Smith and uh, a whole bunch of these other Cubans were involved. But I have to preface what I say about the anti-Castro Cubans, because I really do not believe for a second that they actually gave a shit about what was going on in Cuba. Um, Sergio Acacha Smith ended up running off with a whole bunch of funds from the Friends of Democratic Cuba. And I'm really just starting to believe that these were various uh, political fronts for the gathering and laundering of money. Um, Just like all the odd churches that seem to pop up in the Kennedy assassination where they have like one member, right, and no address. (laughs) Right. So these are obviously being utilized by the CIA as ways to launder money because you don't uh, these churches don't pay taxes. They get tax exempt status. So the CIA set up a whole number of these. Uh, Jack Martin in uh, New Orleans was facilitating the creation of a lot of these churches. And so the yeah.
1: Unitarian churches, it was all those Unitarian ones. Is that right? Or uh,
0: well, I, I have to look into the Unitarian church because that's one connected to George de Um, But there's a big but- conflict. Go ahead. Yeah, but these
1: these people who are overseeing Oswald, he had overseers. He had to have at least ten: Cobb, Williams, Moren- de Demournschild. You mm-hmm. look through a lot of these pain; they're involved in the Unitarian Church, which is kind of not really—it's not doctrinaire doctrinally tied
0: to Christianity. It's more of kind of like a if it smells fishy, it's probably one of the CIA fronts,
1: right? But it's like a perennial religion where there's wisdom all over the earth. Christ is kind of one of the main teachers, instead of being the Son of
0: God. You know, another I mean? weird thing about the White Russian community is that they're all kind of their actual religions are kind of brushed over, uh, and we're I think we're led to believe more often than not than they're that they're connected connected to Catholicism or or Orthodox. Christianity in some way. But when you look into the history of the real White Russians who got, who fled from uh, Eastern Bloc countries, the vast majority of them were Jewish, and many of them came to the United States changed their names, changed their religious affiliations, but were still uh, of Jewish bloodline, right? So hmm. it's really it's really interesting. That's another one of those things that I have to continue to uh, dig into. I haven't spent a lot of time on the white Russians. But uh, but yeah, what, what I was saying was that Oswald and, Je- and uh, John Armstrong, he failed in his conclusions because he thought that the second Oswald was this other duplicate who had been around since he was a kid, um, which... I, you know, unless it was just an, uh, a, a a double, triple whammy, as I like to call it, and they faked paperwork to give the appearance, because that's never outside the question either. Right. So they could always have just faked paperwork, which is definitely possible. Um, but he didn't take into consideration that uh, from the time that Oswald was uh, still in the Soviet Union, that there had been people impersonating him in New Orleans, uh, which you can pretty much trace through the witness statements and associations. Uh, back to Kerry Thornley, and then in Dallas, William Seymour. So,
1: and you said Thornley looked exactly like Oswald back at that time, right. 60, 63, because he right. changed his whole appearance. He grew a beard, he right? Took on the whole hippie hippie persona.
0: So, from what I can tell, and um, in, in, in particular with that hippie persona, uh, he was described as a bearded beatnik all over the place, right? And so, but that um, that didn't occur until. Uh, like second quarter of 1963. So you have uh, Perry Russo who claims to have seen Oswald at a party with Clay Shaw, David Ferry, and they're uh, discussing the assassination, right? It was the whole, uh, it was the, it was the whole theme of the uh, JFK movie, right? Right. Perry
1: Russo was the male prostitute, right? Played by
0: Kevin Bacon. Well, that character really doesn't exist. Um, That's a compilation of characters. There never was a male prostitute uh, in the real story. Um, but I, I, he mentions Perry Russo in the movie, so it wasn't really meant to protect him. Uh, but Perry Russo was a, a, an, auto, an insurance salesman, and he goes to this party, and he ends up telling Garrison that it was definitely Oswald at the party. Uh, but when he testifies in the Warren Commission, we learn a little bit more. We learn that he had actually met that individual sometime between May and uh, August, uh, and he was introduced to Fa- by Ferry as Ferry's roommate, and he said he was the beatnik with the big, bushy beard. Then when he meets him again at the party, which is the second time he's meeting this person, and this time he describes him as having whiskers, meaning he was not clean-shaven. So when you so really... There's no picture
1: of Oswald like that. Never. Oswald was
0: clean-shaven. Clean shaven. Every Everyone always said he was neat, tidy, and he was always clean-shaven. So... um. When you un- come to understand the relationships of the people involved, and I really harp on this more than anything else, understanding the relationships between people will tell you far more about the assassination than studying the uh, you know, bullet trajectories and all the stuff and what happened in Dealey Plaza. What happened in Dealey Plaza really comes secondary as far as evidence goes. Uh, it's relationships that will prove the case every single time. So when you come to understand the relationship between David Ferry and Carrie Thornley and that Carrie Thornley had been a roommate uh, of David Ferry, even though that information didn't come out till years later, um, it becomes pretty obvious that the person who uh, Perry Russo was describing was, in fact, Carrie Thornley at that party. And he was using the name Leon Oswald. Right. Um, Actually, uh, there's a couple documents that he had used the name Leon Osborne, not Oswald. So there's a, there's a little mix up there in a couple places, like the Fair Play for Cuba committee flyers. We've all heard about uh, Oswald handing out these flyers on the street for Fair Play for Cuba committee. And so he must be a communist. Well, when you, uh, when, when Harold Weisberg, who was a, a, a former OSS officer, he went on to become a, a, a big time JFK researcher. He just died, I think like 10 years ago. Um, he worked with Garrison, right? No, he communicated with Garrison, but it was his, he did his own separate investigation and mostly in the 70s after Garrison was done. But he stayed in contact with Garrison and he filled in a lot of gaps that Garrison couldn't. Um, so when you dig into the, the, the printing of the actual flyers for the Fair Play for Cuba committee, he goes and interviews the guy Jones is his name. And it was from Jones Printing. And he shows him about 100 photographs. And the guy picks out four photographs of the man who had the flyers printed. And all four photographs were of Kerry Thornley. And one of the photographs even had him with a big old beard. So it's clear that uh, Kerry Thornley had the flyers printed, not Oswald, so it was definitely just an assignment. Here, Lee, take these and go hand these out on the street corner. And then you have the incident where he's filmed handing out these flyers on the street corner.
1: Right, and Thornley was the first person to mention Oswald in some kind of autobiographical or fictional book, right? Before the assassination. Yes.
0: I have a feeling that if they were to ever build like a Mount Rushmore of stupid, it would have one face on it and it would be the face of Kerry Thornley. And I say that because if you're going to get involved in a plot to assassinate the president and you're going to have a patsy who is a communist who defects to the Soviet Union, it would probably be in your best interest not to write a book about it before the assassination. And that's exactly what he did. Um, He wrote a book called The Idle Warriors and he says that he was inspired by Oswald after the fact, but then his dates got mixed up. And then it turned out that he had actually started that book um, in like 1960, years before the assassination occurred. Um, You even have witnesses in Atsugi um, who say that a guy there whose name was uh, Rick Thornley uh, was keeping tabs on Oswald's group, uh, extensive notes uh, on everything about all the men in the unit. And he had told this witness who was at Atsugi, that he was doing it for future writing purposes. So, uh, and that goes back to 59. So you have Kerry Thornley overly involved with Oswald going back to 1959. They were stationed in at least three different locations together. Um, and Oswald had allegedly left Atsugi prior to Thornley. And Thornley was there for a couple of months afterwards, which is when he started his book on Oswald uh, called The Idle Warriors. So yeah. If you're going to shoot the president, don't write a book about it before it happens because it's a dead giveaway that you were involved, right? And so, so you've, tra- you're the one, you also believe that
1: Thornley was involved in the day of the assassination in Tippett's murder, right? You, oh, absolutely.
0: You, okay. Absolutely. Um, the Tippett shooting, I believe, was done by, it was definitely done by two people. One of them was David Ferry. Um, you have, so I, I'll give you the short version of Tippett. So, um, the, Cab driver, William Whaley, drops somebody off at uh, the boarding house, right? Um, And But William Whaley's log was cleared by 1245, okay? So you have a 15-minute gap between when the person who was dropped off by the cab and the time that Oswald allegedly goes into the boarding house. There's a 15-minute gap there. So what that tells me is that it was only literally like a minute walk or a two-minute walk to get to the house from where he was dropped off. That tells me that there was a second safe house in the area, that it was the person had gone to. And then shortly after uh, they, they hung out at the second boarding, the second house, this uh, safe house. Then at exactly one o'clock, they walk over to 1026 North Beckley. It was Carrie Thornley. Uh, we know it was Carrie Thornley because of descriptions given by numerous witnesses at the scene who stated it was clearly Oswald. However, we know it wasn't Oswald because Oswald has an alibi at this time. So, and I'll get to that here momentarily, but from the boarding house, uh, there was, people know that a cop car pulled up front, honked the horn twice, right. And then drove off. Well, I would posit that the cop car did not drive off. They honked the horn twice. That was a signal to Carrie Thornley, who was grabbing his jacket and the revolver. He comes out and he goes around the corner from the boarding house out of sight from, um, from, uh, Earlene Roberts, who was the caretaker of the house. Um, like, are you a fist pumper, a woo hooer a hand clapper, a high-fiver? I kind of like the high-five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Earlene Roberts, also sisters with Bertha Cheek, who's a close associate of Jack Ruby, um, and so Carrie Thornley then is driven to the Tippet shooting by two cops who were the first to show up on scene, Westbrook and Croy. So we know this because uh, a woman named Doris Holland, who was across the street from the Tippet shooting, who observed it from a second floor window. Uh, she describes a guy exactly like Oswald, receding hairline, all that stuff. But it couldn't be Oswald because I have an alibi for him. And it also couldn't have been William Seymour, the other person impersonating Oswald because, well, he's on the other side of Oak Cliff at this time. So, um, Thornley is then driven there by Westbrook and Croy. Westbrook is allegedly the one who found the wallet with the Alec Hydel Selective Service card in it. It's kind of unusual because the wallet disappears, but the Selective Service card makes its way into Oswald's possessions at the police department. So but that as- was that
1: was Oswald's alias, right? I don't. Yes,
0: Alec Hydel. Whether or not he actually used that alias, I cannot have not yet determined. Um, but we know Supposedly that the rifle was. Right. The, the rifle and the handgun, a whole bunch of uh, communist stuff was sent under that name. But when you look at how P.O. boxes worked back then, they would have rejected all that because none of that was on the the name. Alec Heidel was not on the P.O. box. So he couldn't have received any of that stuff. It was just more part of the planting, uh, the, the establishing a false trail to Oswald to these various things. But as far as the tip of shooting goes, uh, when Westbrook and Croy get there, uh, Kerry Thornley now is wearing his his light tan or light gray jacket. Uh, He has the revolver. Uh, They're there meeting with David Ferry. And David Ferry, I put in Dallas. It took me at least a year to figure out that David Ferry was actually in Dallas. Uh, He's the central person in the uh, entire uh, investigation as far as garrison goes. So how could he not be involved? And if he was involved, how could he not be in Dallas? Well, he was in Dallas. And it took me about four or five witnesses really analyzing their statements and taking a piece of each statement and putting it together to realize that David Ferry was one of two shooters on the knoll. And he also shot J.D. Tippett. Uh, These this, uh, I connected through a statements from a guy named Ed Hoffman uh, and then a woman named Velma who was behind the knoll uh, sitting in a car who saw David Ferry get into a light blue over gray Plymouth and that he had real heavy eyebrows. From there, the light gray over blue Plymouth is it shows up at the Tippett shooting where it's seen by Akilah Clemens and it's seen by a guy named Frank Wright. And so uh, David Ferry delivers the headshot uh, with a revolver and Kerry Thornley delivered three shots to Tippett's chest using a semi-automatic. We know it's a semi-automatic number one because the shells were left at the scene, right? Uh, David Ferry uh, intentionally took his uh, revolver uh, shell out and planted it at the scene. Uh, but um, after this, so after you have the shooting go down, what's David the motive for Ferry... killing Tippett? Okay, so this is what's interesting about Tippett. So we know Tippett was involved on some lower level uh, because. He's seen waiting at like quarter to one at the Gloco station. So Tippett is in Dealey Plaza. I have a picture of him on Houston street uh, taken from the Robert Hughes film. So uh, from there, he meets with David Ferry back behind the knoll. This uh, this was a statement given by a woman named Velma who called into a radio show. And I have the clip of that. Um, And so basically... Tippett's involved somehow from there he goes from the, from being behind the book depository. He then ends up going over to the gloco station where he's seen sitting for at least 10 minutes right across from the gloco station is a bus stop uh, that comes to, uh, it's just at the other side of an overpass, right? So he's sitting there, he's sitting there. Um, When I, what I have decided happened is that nobody gets off the bus. He's supposed to meet somebody there, whether it is to, Whether it's to arrest him or shoot him or give him a ride, doesn't really matter. He's told to be there because someone's going to be getting off the bus. When nobody gets off the bus, Tippett rushes to the Top Ten record store where he makes a phone call right about one o'clock. He lets it ring. It rings and nobody answers. And he rushes out of the store. uh, And it seemed like he was almost in a panic. Uh, By 104 on 10th Street in Oak Cliff, right up the road from where he's eventually shot, he cuts a car off the road, gets out. Runs back to the car, looks in it, and he looks behind the, the front seat as though he's looking for somebody hiding in the car. Okay, there's nobody there, so he gets back in his car, and then he pulls up, blocking the alley on Tenth Street near Patton, where Westbrook and Croy are already parked, waiting for him. And that is when Carrie Thornley gets out of the vehicle, um, and David Ferry approaches at the same time. They both shoot Tippett. Uh, this is all tested. Uh, this is all stated by Akilah Clemens. Her testimony is just phenomenal. And uh, so I believe that the reason he was killed was because in general, uh, they needed a a cop to die to get the officers behind uh, the investigation. They needed to rile them up, right? And so then look what happens at the Texas theater. You got 30 cops rushing there for allegedly a guy who walked in without buying a ticket, right? So um, that's my opinion on Tippett, on why Tippett had to die. They needed to spark the Dallas police into action um, because nobody really gave a shit that Kennedy got killed. That was kind of their attitude. Even though you have cops on the scene, right, gathering information, taking witness statements, um, I think that the the, the murder of J.D. Tippett really really got everyone behind getting this guy, and that was the purpose of it. Gotcha. So, uh, so Thornley, and we talked in the pre-show,
1: Thornley was an interesting character. He became involved in discordianism. Mm-hmm. Robert Anton Wilson. I think his, his pseudonym was Macalips the Younger or something weird like that. Right. Like he just carried on this trajectory which was very high strangeness. Have you ever read Alberelli's book? Uh did you read the one that's strange the Yeah, Strangers? high strangeness in
0: the Kennedy yeah. Yes. I also bought his new book Coup in Dallas. Um I've only flipped through it, but uh it, it, he he uncovers some amazing information. He identifies the Corsicans uh, who had come into Dallas. Uh, there were actually Corsicans in Dallas. He confirmed that Otto Scorzani was in Daly Plaza.
1: Really? Um, so he, Galvarelli, really said Scorzani I did yeah. a really interesting yeah. interview about Scorzani but... Uh,
0: Scorzani is a fascinating guy. Yeah. And you got to think in 46, he was killing people for the Israelis, right? He was hunting down his old Nazi buddies. Um, that's the that's the story, at least. Um, it, well,
1: I think that's confirmed. I think he was, he betrayed, he actually went to where he switched and worked for the Mossad and... and undercut a lot of the missile guys who went to Egypt. Yeah. So he routed them out and they were, a lot of them were systematically killed.
0: Yep. Um, and so, but yeah, uh, he puts uh Scorsini in Dallas. Um, and the book is, is, is really, I have to really uh, dive deep into it. It's phenomenal, but he once again, doesn't really point any fingers to shooters other than to say, Hey, look, these Corsicans were there. So they must've been the shooters. It's kind of his attitude, but uh, one, th- one thing that uh, people don't realize is that, yes, the Corsicans were there. Um, they flew in assassins from all all over the place. I mean, there was at least a dozen mob assassins walking around the crowd in Dealey Plaza. They had the Corsican mm-hmm. assassins come in. There's allegedly even some Mexican assassins that they had brought in. But these people were to um, muddy the water, right? When they went and looked to see what, what assassins, known assassins, were in Texas and Dallas that day, they're going to find 30 of them, right? So good luck figuring oh, out which really one incredible. it is. Really clever. Um, They pulled out all the stops. All the stops. And you got to think when, uh, with Oswald, when he went to Mexico City, um, they sent another guy named Oswald to Mexico City, whose name was spelled O-S-S-W-A-L-D. And he was a part of Naval Intelligence. And he was there the same dates that Lee Harvey Oswald was allegedly there. Um, and his job was to go hand out flyers on a college campus, and that's what he did. And all of these, all of these files are in the Garrison or Weisberg files. And uh, so, yeah, they pulled out all the stops. They but said it also,
1: it also conveys. I mean, you can deduce a lot. Of very sophisticated, experienced Intel people with weird nicknames, and and mm-hmm. the, the the handlers in the CIA. You uncover these businesses and people. It's all intelligence people. It's all x yep. all over the place. Everyone, I think you talked about in that lecture. Even the printer who or the the photographic, the person who made the photographs was CIA associated. So anything that went yeah. through the photograph, somebody was going to put their finger on it and made sure that the lone shooter narrative was maintained, right?
0: Yeah, it was uh, Jagger's Charles Scovald, which yeah, is where were. Oswald allegedly worked. And when you look at Oswald's alleged jobs, I don't think he ever worked at any of these places. I think that these were CIA fronts that who were uh, businesses who are friendly to the CIA, uh, definitely contractors like Jagger's Charles Scovald. And uh, they basically put somebody on the payroll and then the CIA pays them. And so they get their money and it says they have a legit job when really they're out running operations. So Uh, Four of the guys who worked at Riley Coffee went to go work for NASA and Michaud and all these other places that were connected to aerospace. But aerospace uh, at the time, like NASA, uh, NASA was an intelligence front for the CIA for God, up until the 1970s, probably post Apollo. Um, And so um, what you have is like and, and another thing when you come to understand the Winterland ice rink where David Ferry allegedly went, but he never really went. Um, when you look at that, the the woman who started and ran that place was a Mary, a woman named Mary boots, Roberts and Mary boots, Roberts, after having worked and run the winterland, went to go work for NASA during the Apollo and Gemini missions. Did she really? Of course not. There was a front and she was probably getting paid through NASA, but she was a spy. Um, and and that led me to another connection that like ice capades and like Disney on ice and all of these like ice traveling ice you know, show companies uh, were, these were all fronts for the CIA to do smuggling. I mean, it's yeah. fucking crazy when you start to really dig. When I got into the Winterland, and I'll tell you the story of the Winterland. So um, David Ferry allegedly goes there to go ice skating the day after the assassination. He allegedly drives the day of the assassination through a big thunderstorm. And all of that was really to provide an alibi for David Ferry because David Ferry had been in Dallas at least two days before the assassination Um, what I figured out there was that he flew into, he had his plane and he flew into Dallas or Fort Worth two days before the assassination. Then on the day of the assassination, a guy named Joe Cody, who was a friend of Jack Ruby, who was on the Dallas police department. He uh, flew Ferry's plane back to Shreveport while David Ferry drove out in a car, uh, in a light colored Ford Thunderbird or Ford Falcon that is so. Um, there's all kinds of shenanigans connecting David Ferry to Jack Ruby, to the Dallas Police Department. But, in as far as the Winterland goes, David Ferry never went to the Winterland, okay? He was in Dallas, so the whole story about him driving there making a bunch of stops in uh, Kenner and a bunch of places along the way, it's just all BS. And what he actually did was he was hiding out in a dorm room in Hammond, Louisiana at Southeastern University with a guy named Thomas Compton. And Thomas Compton, um, it's funny because the story that he gave to the FBI and to Garrison completely contradicts the story that his roommate, Frank J. Cholona, gave to the same people. So basically, Cholona outs the whole story about the Winterland by telling investigators that he had been told by Thomas Compton that a friend of his would be coming to stay in their room, and this was a couple of days before the assassination, Okay. So we know just by that statement that Thomas Compton and David Ferry had made plans for Ferry to go there uh, the day of the assassination. So uh, Frank J. Celona, he gets into the dorm room the night of the assassination and he sees this guy with who has like, he said he looked funny and then he had his hair, was apparently, uh, his, his hair was apparently pasted to his hat where his hat met his head. And so obviously that's David Ferry. He gives a pretty good description of Ferry with the funny eyebrows. And then the next day on Saturday, when Ferry is supposed to be at the Winterland Ice Rink, he's not, because Frank J. Cholona sees him again sleeping in his roommate's bed. So Ferry went there. He spent the whole weekend there. Uh, the only time he left from Hammond, uh, Louisiana that weekend was to drive down to Galveston, where he ended up checking into the Driftwood Hotel, but he wasn't checking in for himself. He was checking in for Sergio Acaccia-Smith and Leighton Martins and Alvin Boboof who were actually the three who were on that trip and who'd gone to the Winterland. So um, Ferry then drives back from the Driftwood and he arrives uh, Sunday at about five o'clock in the morning. And this coincides with Thomas Compton's testimony on when Ferry showed up there the first time. Um, But when you really start to look at the Winterland and who owned the Winterland, what it comes down to is that Lyndon Johnson and the the Johnson family enterprise owned the Winterland ice rink. Uh, They had built the rink, because of uh, inspiration from Mary Boots Roberts, who had known Lyndon Johnson personally, um, and so they built the rink for her. Uh, she ends up running that rink for a couple years until, um, until b- prior to the assassination, allegedly, and that's when David Ferry allegedly shows up and meets with a guy named Roland, Chuck Roland, and that's not even his real name. His real name is Rulon, R-U-L-O-N, Roland. Uh, and so the whole incident at the Winterland is another staged event in a long series of staged events. Um,
1: it's just and incredible. Then, and I mean, is, isn't the story, I think I read somewhere, Johnson was the one who got Oswald the job at the Book Depository. Have you heard that? And the Book Depository had um, Intel Connections?
0: So the person, yeah, the person who got Oswald the job there, It started with Lenny May Randall, who was uh, Buell Frazier's sister, okay? So one thing I need to emphasize, that obviously the Book Depository was a CIA front, all right? All the guys who had worked there at the top levels, ov Campbell, Roy Trulli, uh, even Joe Molina, William Shelley, these guys were all OSS during World War II. And when you look and see what they did, they all worked in CIA publishing after that. With Lucky Land sluts, you can get lucky just about anywhere. So the, once you come to realize that the book depository is a CIA front and everybody working there is at some level, whether knowingly or not working for the CIA, you can tell that most of the secretaries who worked in that building were just clueless. They didn't know anything. Um, but uh, when you realize that the, the, the U.S. government is not going to trust any Joe Schmo to print textbooks, OK, that's where the narrative starts. It starts in schools and brainwashing our kids. And then anybody who thinks that the CIA doesn't directly control the textbook industry is just crazy. Um, so yeah, when you come to realize that and you come to understand that even the CIA needs guys to mop the floor, that's where guys like, uh, Buell Frazier and Billy Lovelady and, um, you know, Jarman and, uh, Bonnie Ray Williams, that's where all these guys come in because these guys packed textbooks printed by the CIA to send to schools to indoctrinate our children. That's pretty much how that worked. Uh, and so when you look at, uh, how the chain of events, uh, started, Uh, allegedly uh, Lenny Mae Randall tells uh, Ruth Payne who lives one street over from her and her brother Buell Frazier, right? So she tells Ruth Payne that there's a job opening there and then uh, she tells Oswald and then literally according to the official story the next day he gets the job there on the 15th of October. The, The problem is that we have other people see when you have a mix of people who are involved in a setup and not involved in a setup all working together some of them don't realize things that they say shouldn't really be said. And so there were a couple witnesses who had seen Oswald at the book depository as far back as October 4th, but on October 4th, he had just gotten back allegedly from Mexico city. And October 4th is the date that he met with Laura Cottrell at the Texas employment commission. And obviously it wasn't Oswald at the Texas employment commission that was determined to have been Larry Crawford. Um, another guy associate of Jack Ruby, but didn't really look like Oswald. He was probably just gone, you know, supposed to go there and fill out the paperwork and make it look like he was there, but he ended up with an interview somehow. And then Laura Cottrell identifies Larry Crawford as that man. So um, the connection to the book depository went through uh, Lenny Mae Randall to Ruth Payne to Oswald, where Oswald then applies on the 15th of October um, now, th- this is where all the problems start with Oswald and his uh, and duplicates of Oswald because he's supposed to have had a perfect attendance record. Uh, but when you actually look at the other Oswald sightings around the country, uh, you have a dozen or more sightings of Oswald in different places uh, when Oswald has a perfect attendance record at the book depository. So, right, so just answer,
1: in that month before the assassination, he's supposedly all over the place.
0: Yeah. Yeah. October of 63, he's everywhere from Montreal to New Orleans to South Dakota or North Dakota. Uh, He signs in uh, on the registry of uh, the Atomic Museum, like in Virginia, like he's he's all over the place. And so that was when I kind of started to realize that he probably wasn't even there at that building. He probably didn't work there. And then on the day of the assassination, when I really figured out who the shooters were, particularly in the book depository, um, it came back down to William Seymour, Lauren Hall, and Lawrence Howard. And when I realized that, and realized that William Seymour had been at the shooting range firing at other people's targets, not Oswald.
1: Right. Uh, but but saying he's like Oswald, that, though,
0: right? Right, because he, these guys genuinely did look very similar to Oswald. And remember, if you're not, if you if you meet somebody and you're not thinking to yourself, "Man, I need to remember this person." It's gonna be like just like another incident, you know. Hey, I met this guy, and you're probably gonna forget about it ten minutes later. Then, when you see his picture two months later on the news, you know, hey, that kind of looks like that guy who was talking about communism, right? So that's exactly what they did. Uh, Some annoying we- guy with the
1: propensity to shoot. Like they're right. establishing that legend. Correct. Shoot, exactly. and uh, we talked about uh, Walker, right? Getting a shot at. Right. So yeah. So I'll
0: touch on another story. Bit. So Walker, the neighbor of Walker, who was a 14-year-old kid, he sees what happened. Um, Well, he doesn't see the actual shooting, but he hears the bang, comes running outside. He looks and he sees there's a church parking lot right next to um, his house. And there are two cars parked in line with the lights on running. Uh, And he looks and he sees two men. One gets into the first car, no description, drives away. The other guy goes to the back seat of the second car, throws something in there, and then gets in the front seat, drives away. There's no additional description on the, on the men or the vehicles, but we have two men shooting at Walker's house. And at the same time in April, you've got uh, William Seymour, Lauren Hall, and Lawrence Howard documented having been in Dallas. Uh, and we know that they had met with Walker at some point in time. So then I'm going through the Garrison files and I read a statement by a guy named Jules Rico Kimball. Jules Rico Kimball flat out states, tells Garrison, of course, it was uh, Lauren Hall and Lawrence Howard who were shooting at Walker. He's like, it's right up their alley. And I've known these guys for years. I'm confident it was them. Uh, and also that fits with my theory that it was those three guys, Lauren Hall, Lawrence Howard, and William Seymour, setting Oswald up all over Dallas. That made me believe, I think he's right. I believe that the people who shot at Walker's house, it was either Lauren Hall or Lawrence Howard, but both of them were present. and Both of them fled uh, from the scene immediately afterwards. So, right.
1: So, I mean, it was just to establish that legend. It wasn't yes. to even kill Edwin Walker just right, was eye. a
0: left-wing communist loving uh and you know, um, and that was done with the man right the carcano that was what was used to fire into uh, his house because they have the bullet um you know the, the gun the rifle was also uh, it probably never went to Kleins, it got shipped to crescent firearms in cleveland um and it came from a company called adams consolidated who was closely associated with uh, Interarmco, which was a company owned by Samuel Cummings. Samuel Cummings uh, is a longtime CIA agent, uh, and he is associated on the board of directors for Adams Consolidated with a guy named Enrico Fratoli. Enrico Fratoli was a board member of Permindex. I don't know how much you know about Permindex.
1: Well, I do a lot about Clay Shaw, and that's yeah. the background of Clay Shaw's intel Correct. that goes back right after World War II. So he was right. a, he was a heavy hitter. Heavy hitter, I Intel person.
0: That. Major heavy hitter. Just the fact that he was put on the board of permandex and permandex. I'll talk about permandex real quickly. Uh, permandex is the absolute proof that the Mafia, the CIA, and the Israeli Mossad all work together. Uh, it was a the board of directors included Dulles, Angleton, um, Clay Shaw. It also had Mo Dalitz, gangster Joe Bonanno, gangster. Um, in the later years, it had Gershon Perez who was a uh, brother was Sharon Perez, right? In, in, wow, in- right, right, right. right.
1: right. Sharon Perez, so, huge. Yeah. He was right. the prime minister, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. And so you have all these people who sit on the board of directors for a company called Permindex. And it got a lot of attention and ended up getting kicked out of Switzerland uh, because they were funneling money to the OAS, uh, which was uh, the French kind of militant uh, rebels who are associated with the, uh, with the Corsican mafia. Uh, they had attempted uh, the life of Charles de Gaulle numerous times. It was traced back to Permindex had funded it. And so they created, they got kicked out of there and they ended up going to South Africa. Uh, well, so the day of the jackal
1: is a really good movie about it. Right, right. Which right. is very curious because it has strange overlaps with this case because the day of the jackal, the identity of the assassin is never properly established. <laughs> they, right, right. They get to the point where, like, we think that's his real name, but that, even that is a fake name. Sorry. But
0: right. Right. Know. Right. Uh, that's, that's very much the case uh, with uh, Kennedy. Figure out people's real names This can be difficult sometimes. So but they, what they end up doing is uh, they end up creating a sub company called uh, CMC, Centro Mondiale Commerciale, and it was based out of Italy. And it was used to, God in the late 60s. It was used to finance terrorist attacks in Italy that they are uh, called the, um, the strategy of tension. OK, so the strategy of tension, which was meant to bring the fascists into power in the late 60s, was all facilitated and, and, and funded by CMC. But in 1963, CMC was being run by a guy named Louis Bloomfield out of Montreal, okay? So there's a lot of debate over whether or not Oswald went to Montreal, right? So we have flight records showing that a guy named Lambert and Diaz uh, and Heidel had gotten on a plane and David Ferry flew them to Montreal. That uh, Oswald never did that. That was Kerry Thornley. It was Sergio Arcacha uh, smith and Clay Shaw who were being flown up to Montreal. And why were they going to Montreal? to meet with Louis Bloomfield, um, who was a board member of Permandex and at the time the head of CMC, uh, which is what really Clay Shaw was more associated with in that era post-1962, uh, whereas uh, Clay Shaw was a board of director member of Permindex from 59, I think, to 62. But so, the
1: strategy of tension is very important to understand because it does play in to what was happening prior to the assassination, because the strategy of tension was intended to blame the left for these bombings, it was the right blaming the left. So it was a big PSYOP and you can kind of see that same thing happening in the Oswald thing, where you're saying this guy's a communist sympathizer right. of Castro. That's why he did it.
0: Right. Right. So, so yeah, so you have that, you have all these connections uh, between like even the rifle to Permadex, Uh And so when it comes to the book depository, what really iced it for me was that when I started to realize that it was not Oswald at the gun range, right? So you have the, the uh, Sports Dome gun range in uh, Dallas that Oswald had allegedly gone to and he was seen shooting at other people's targets. Garland Slack uh, is the witness who said that he shot at his targets. But when you go through the each individual statement of every person who saw this person there, who everyone identified as they believe it was Lee Harvey Oswald, when you dig into the individual statements, you'll find a lot of conflicting information but one thing that is consistent is that Oswald was seen there with a heavy-set guy with numerous bumps on his face or a pockmarked face and he looked like he was a Mexican and had long shaggy hair. So, when you come to understand which uh of this limited cast of characters, right, the inner circle of the assassination, I mean the guys who pulled the triggers, there's a it's it's a very small group of people, right? So, you're not going to have people, two or three, you know, connections down the road, unknowing that the assassination is okay. going on. It's a tight and group. It's a, a tight, tight group. group. And when you kind of come to understand who the people are in this tight group, you come to realize that the heavyset, um, the heavyset Latino with a pockmarked face was clearly Lawrence Howard and that he used to drive a light green Rambler, right? So where have we heard about a light green Rambler in the story? Well, allegedly at 1240 PM, Even Roger Craig, who I've confirmed is an outright liar, um, you have people who say that they saw uh, Oswald or somebody who was identical to Oswald run out of the side of the book depository, run down the hill, gets into a light green Nash Rambler with a roof rack, and then they drive away. For many years, people have tried to say that that was Ruth Payne in her 1950-something light blue Chevy, which it most certainly was not. Um, I found the registration for Lawrence Howard and his 1960 uh, light green Nash Rambler. And so sometimes you have to look at all the pieces of the puzzle at once to try to see what can fit, right? You have to you have to take a little bit from over here, a little bit from over there, and kind of realize that when you look at the descriptions of the people who gave statements in regards to their seeing uh, gunmen on the sixth floor of the depository, one of them is described as about 5'10", 5'11". Kind of heavy set white guy um, uh, with a hat and uh, tortoiseshell glasses, and he was holding a rifle. On the other side, uh, which would be the sniper's nest, you have a description: heavy set guy with a dark complexion, right? And so, how many people have we come across in this uh, in this cast of characters who meets that description? So we have Oswald, um, who I found a picture of uh, out back of the uh, book depository. William Seymour as Oswald out back of the book depository wearing a light brown jacket. Um, he is communicating in the video uh, and I, I can show it here. Um, he's communicating with a guy named Trantham. Trantham was the uh, a detective for the sheriff's office uh, who was standing behind the book depository at the time of the assassination. As soon as the assassination happens, he runs back into the railroad yards. Some people tried to say that was Jack Ruby. It was not Jack Ruby. It was Detective Trantham. But in this video, you can clearly see William Seymour looking at this guy, getting a signal from him. And then I trace William Seymour back into the book depository where he runs into uh, Baker and Truly. So I have to address the uh, the story of Oswald being in the second floor lunchroom drinking a Coke story. That story is a complete fiction. That incident never happened, especially not 90 seconds after uh, the assassination shooting, right?
1: Like you said, like you didn't hear any shooting or gunshots or anything like that.
0: At well, casually, the, a, a... that whole incident is, is false. None of that happened. Like it 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 didn't happen at all. And I'll tell you why. The first is the first reason I know that didn't happen is because Baker did not enter the book depository until twelve thirty seven at the earliest, and we know this because we have the statements of Robert McNeil, the reporter for NBC, who entered the book depository just after the assassination looking for a phone. He ends up finding... McNeil Lehrer, right? McNeil Lehrer report, same guy. Right. Same guy. So he ends up calling his news desk and the call is timestamped 1236. He tells the FBI and the Dallas police that no police officer entered that building while he was there. None. So that means that Baker did not enter the building 90 seconds after and entered the second floor because McNeil was there and he completely debunks that claim. He said, no cop entered until at least after I left, which would put it at 1237. That makes perfect sense to me because uh, from being out back, William Seymour, who's wearing a light brown jacket, then re-enters the book depository. Uh, at this point in time, the power has been turned back on to the building by William Shelley, okay? I'm not gonna get into the reasoning on this, but William Shelley is the one who killed the power to the building and then he turns the power back on immediately after the assassination. After this happens, William Seymour enters the building approximately 1233 to 1234. He then takes the elevator back to the sixth floor, begins his descent down the stairs. Now, he is stopped on the stairs between the fourth and third floor by Baker and Truly. And we know this because Baker's original notes said it was between the third and fourth floor. Then when you read a report by Curry, right, the police chief, he says the same thing. He says, Officer Baker stopped this man between the fourth and the third floor. So no one ever got stopped on the second floor lunchroom. It's a complete myth. Um, so he stops him. Uh, and then here's another thing. We know it's not Oswald, okay? I'm telling you, Oswald doesn't work here. I have no evidence Oswald worked there. All of the evidence that we have, like time cards, are props in a big, elaborate staged event. So- oh, It's just incredible. It like, they really oh, went
1: into it in detail. It's really incredible.
0: Well, the way I see it is it's the most important event in world history and they knew it and they had mm-hmm. to take, they had to, plausible deniability is the name of the game. And so they stopped William Seymour on the stairs and they detain him for probably a minute or maybe even two minutes. So I put this at around 1238 to 1239 that they're stopping him on the stairwell. Roy truly vouches for him and it's not Oswald. So you got Roy truly vouching for somebody who is definitely not Oswald, Right. So then they let him continue on down the stairs. And then at exactly 1240, you have him coming out the side of the building, running down the hill, getting into the Nash Rambler, the green Nash Rambler that is owned by Lawrence Howard. And then the two of them head out to Oak Cliff. I was able to trace them from there uh, to a place called the Tidy Lady Laundry in North Oak Cliff off of North Clinton Street. So basically uh, after that, William Seymour drops off Lauren Hall, and Lawrence Howard at probably a safe house somewhere in Northern Oak Cliff. From there, he, he goes to the Tidy Lady Laundry where he drops the car off in the parking lot. He starts to walk away, but then he turns around, goes back into the laundromat. He makes a phone call, and this is, we have witnesses inside the Tidy Lady Laundry who give this uh, to the Dallas police and the FBI. They say he looks like he's in a hurry. He looks panicked. He picks up a phone and calls somebody and he talks in Mexican, okay? So he's speaking Spanish. He then leaves and then continues to walk south on North Clinton. This is somewhere in the neighborhood of 1250 to one o'clock, okay? So the Tippett shooting happens at 106, and this is at least 10 or 12 blocks away, Um, and so I don't put William uh, Seymour anywhere near the Tippett shooting. He's all the way over on the other side of Oak Cliff, and he's wearing different clothes, including the light brown jacket that he was wearing um, when he's photographed behind uh, the book depository. And when he stopped by Truly and Baker on the stairs, the witnesses say the same thing. He's wearing a light brown jacket and he spoke in Spanish on the phone. And so then he, uh, those guys, then I then trace them to a, 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 a field like next to an aqueduct, uh, where a, a plane comes in and picks them up. This is all written about by a guy named Robert Vinson in his book, flight from Dallas, um, Basically, these two guys hop on the plane, and he describes one of them look just like Oswald because he sees Oswald later, right? And when he talks to uh, investigators, he's like, this guy looked just like Oswald. Couldn't believe it. But he was accompanied by a six-foot, dark-skinned, looked like a Mexican or somebody from South America who was real husky. It's the same description we saw all over the place, William Seymour and Lawrence Howard impersonating Oswald everywhere. That's how close he looked to Oswald, that he was mistaken for him everywhere he went. Um, and that was used to their advantage. so I traced the actions of those guys had nothing to do with the tippet shooting um and Kerry Thornley had tried to set up Oswald at a bunch of places in Oak Cliff uh, where he went around talking crazy about uh, communism and loving to shoot rifles and stuff like that. so
1: so all that background they're spare they're they're taking their time they're getting the legend mm-hmm. together that Oswald and Oswald, you're saying is not even at the foot book depository, but they have to get him
0: at the right place so that they can make sure that he's the lone gunman, right? Right, so I, I, I don't see Oswald anywhere in this story, really, until, well, all, all of the incidents that uh, George DeMornshield and the Paines talk about, I believe, is the Os- is our Oswald, but that's it. Um, I don't see Oswald doing a damn thing until he shows up at the Texas Theater, and he shows up uh, at 1.06 p.m., uh, the exact second that Tippett is getting shot about four or five blocks away is when he's walking into the front door of the theater. So Butch Burroughs is the manager of the theater. There's only two or three employees there that day. He's also working the candy case. And so when Oswald comes up, Oswald buys a ticket, okay? He does not sneak in like everyone says. That happens later and I'll get to that. But Oswald comes in at 106, he buys a ticket. First thing he does, Butch Burroughs tells the investigators, he goes up to the balcony and looks around and then he comes back down a couple minutes later. Uh, he then walks into the main section of the theater, which had about 900 seats in it. And there's only about 25 people seated, seated in this theater. So what he does is he goes in and he sits next to a guy like directly next to him, like right next to him. And the guy's like, this is a, a huge theater. Why is he sitting next to me? Right. So he gets up and he does this two or three more times. And he eventually ends up sitting down next to a pregnant woman. So I haven't been able to identify the pregnant woman. It's not Marina. She gave birth a month and a half before this. Um, it wasn't Sandra Moffat. She had, She was pregnant. She gave birth back in August. I'm still looking for a pregnant woman somewhere in this mix. But he talks to a pregnant woman. Um, and that was definitely his contact. When Oswald's arrested, he has two halves of two different $1 bills. Okay. And this is documented in the CIA documents that this was a way for you to know who your contact was. You had one half of the bill and your contact had the other half of the bill. And that's how you knew who your contact was. Oswald had two of these in his pocket when he got arrested. So he goes in there and uh, basically him and the pregnant woman get up and they walk out to the lobby. Um, The pregnant woman leaves and then Butch Burroughs sells Oswald popcorn at exactly 1.15 PM, okay? So still not Oswald involved in the tippet shooting. So, Oswald goes back to the theater and he sits there for 40 minutes eating popcorn watching this movie. Okay. Does that sound like a guy who's panicking or thinks that he did anything wrong or thinks he doesn't he, have a clue? He has no clue. Has none. No clue. Tip, not he probably doesn't even know that the president's been shot. Uh, so, now Kerry Thornley shoots JD Tippett. After he shoots Tippett, he flees to. Um, to Jefferson, right? Jefferson Street. And he goes up uh, a flight of stairs in this building. Uh, It's an outer flight of stairs. And he goes upstairs and it's like uh, allegedly some kind of old uh, furniture or secondhand secondhand junk shop. And he's not able to get in there. Witnesses say he yanked on the door, couldn't get in. And he ran down the steps. Um, The witness who was working across the street at a place called Dean's Dairy Way, where they sell milk and stuff like that, She says she sees this happen. She sees who she believes is Oswald take his jacket and he doesn't throw it underneath the car like everyone says. He takes it and he throws it onto a tire rack. And so she actually goes across the street and collects the jacket and then later turns it over to police who probably either replant the jacket underneath the car or planted an entirely different jacket. So we have some shenanigans going on there. But the story that she provides and the story that her kids provide, just tell me that she's absolutely telling the truth. And then we have the radio log showing that after that incident, uh, somebody had fled to the Abundant Life Temple, which was it was another one of these uh, ad hoc churches. It was actually a Jewish temple, but it didn't have any members. Uh, And the guy who had started it had also uh, started Catholic churches. So he was a complete fraud also. Right. But we have the Dallas police transcripts of the radio where it shows that they responded to the Abundant Life Temple. They took somebody into custody. And then a couple minutes later, uh, they, uh, it comes out over the radio. I believe it was actually by Gerald Hill himself. He says, this is not the guy we're looking for. They cut him loose. This is probably about one thirty. This is probably one thirty. So uh, from there, this is now when we have the story of, um, uh, what's his name? Brewster, uh, Johnny Brewster at the shoe store, right? So Johnny Brewster is at the shoe store. Um, really, he's waiting for his cue because he was he received a big ten thousand dollar check that was deposited in his bank account about a week before the assassination. He's obviously in on it. Two guys in the store. Uh, he says that they were working for IBM. They were IBM traveling salesmen. If anybody knows anything about IBM in the 1960s, oh. IBM was often a travel as a front for for CIA hitmen who wanted to travel around the country and to have a coverage story. Right. Yeah. So um, one of those guys I determined was Igor Vaganov. And so, but I'll, get, I'll get, have to talk about him another time. Um, basically, Carry Thornley goes past the, the shoe store. Um, Johnny Brewer is then uh, prompted to follow him into the Texas theater where Carry Thornley does not buy a ticket. Carry Thornley then goes in and goes upstairs to the balcony and he stays there. Um, so Johnny Brewer allegedly searches the whole place and never sees anybody, but come on, Brewer's in on this too. And so- Um, later after Oswald is pulled out the front, uh, Carrie Thornley is arrested out of the balcony. We have a Dallas police department report on this written by a guy named Stringfellow. And so Carrie Thornley is then taken downstairs and he's pulled out the back of the theater. Uh, this is seen by a guy named Jack Applin or I'm sorry, George Applin. Um, George Applin also identified Jack Ruby as having been in the Texas theater when all this with Oswald was going down. So the Texas theater, extremely important. It was owned by Howard Hughes. The coordination of all the CIA spy stuff in there um, was most likely uh, coordinated by uh, Robert Mayhew, who was uh, (coughs) Howard Hughes' right-hand man, who was FBI. Yeah, and he's the one who connected the CIA to Johnny Roselli and those guys. Uh, But yeah, it gets really complicated with all this, with the tradecraft. And this is something I need to emphasize. None of this is fucking crazy at all. This is tradecraft. This is what spies do. This is what they've been developing. These are the systems that they had been developing since World War II, right? 1941 with the birth of the OSS and the Office of the Coordinator of Information. This is what these guys did. And you know, without going into any other off subjects of World War II that were mostly fake, um, you can basically trace a, a, a big right turn in American history post the creation of our own intelligence agencies in 41. And you can see how everything we've come to know about every event ever, has been a, a, a complete fraud, right? We never get the truth about anything at all. And when you come to understand the complexities of Kennedy, it helped put a lot of other questionable events into perspective. So- Right,
1: it puts JFK, MLK in perspective. Probably a lot of these other ones, how sophisticated they are. Malcolm X, some of the other FBI killing. Yeah, so- Fred let me Hampton. Make,
0: let me make, oh yeah, Fred Hampton for sure. Let me make another connection here. So we talked about the Winterland ice rink. And the Winterland Ice Rink was run by a woman named Mary Boots Roberts, right? And she was she knew Johnson. Johnson built a rink for her as the inspiration. And uh, basically, she was not born Mary Roberts. Uh, she was born Mary Caltegarone. Caltegarone is an extremely important name. And as it turns out, she had a first cousin whose name was Vincent Caltegarone Jr., Vincent Caltegarone Jr. I have identified as the short tramp. And thanks to James Earl Ray and um, Penn Jones, we can connect the short tramp as having been the real Raul who set up James Earl Ray in the Martin Luther King assassination, okay? There is one more connection here I need to make, which is extremely important. And it connects Martin Luther King to Kennedy and everything in between. Another connection that I made is that the shooter on the grassy knoll was Jack Valente. Jack Valente is the man who ran Hollywood at the behest of the CIA for 40 years. Jack Valente had a sister whose name was uh, Lorraine Valenti, went on to become Lorraine Valenti Dinerstein. Well, prior to being Lorraine Valenti Dinerstein, she was Lorraine Valenti Caltegarone. She had been married to Vincent Caltegarone, who was the cousin of Mary Boots Roberts, who was the founder of the Winterland Ice Rink, and he was the real Raul. So, you how do you have spell that
1: last name? Call Garonne.
0: C um, A L T A G I R O N E. If you put in Vincent T, Call Jr., the first thing that'll come up is his obituary. Interesting. So, Vincent,
1: well, you know, when you were talking about all this stuff to Montreal, that's where James O'Reilly fled to. When he yes, was. Because
0: There was an intelligence network there that was able to get him fake documents and all the stuff. Um, Some of the aliases that he used actually turn up in the Kennedy assassination, having been used by other people, which is how aliases work. So let me explain how aliases work. Back in the day when they used to use aliases of like dead people, you know, once they once the cops figured out that the guy they were talking to was a dead guy, they knew that that wasn't your real name. And then it was pretty easy to, to bust that you were not who you said you were. So what they started to do, I don't even know when, but they started to use names of real people who they knew, and those names would be used by multiple people. So a perfect example of this is the is the alias of Clem Bertrand, right, or Clay Bertrand that Shaw was supposed to have used. Well, there was an actual real person named Clem Bertrand who was uh, allegedly a bartender in the French Quarter in New Orleans, okay? But there was also another spy named Eugene Davis, who had also used that name, Clem Bertrand, to sign in uh, to a logbook at a, at a meeting that he went to at some hotel. So the name Clem Bertrand get, got passed around between Clay Shaw, uh, Eugene Davis, and it was a real name of a real person, right? That's how aliases work. Um, I traced Dave Yaris and Lenny Patrick, to mob hitmen to Dallas, and there they were staying in a place that was rented to them by Bertha Cheek and they were using the names the records on uh, on that rental were Max Isidore Miller and David Leon Miller. Well, there really had been an Isidore Max Miller and a David Leon Miller who was associated with Dave Yaris, but he had left from Dallas and had moved to Atlanta a month or so before the assassination, right? So when they got to town, they just kind of used their identities while they were there because if for no other reason it would cause confusion and uh, they wouldn't be able to figure out who was really there, right? Cuz all it takes is if, they're, if you're using a, the name of David Leon Miller, but then they go and talk to David Leon Miller, and David Leon Miller has a solid alibi, then all they know is uh, that it was somebody else using his name, right? So that's kind of how the alias game works. Uh, all the names that you come across are shared aliases used by multiple people, and uh, that's kind of how they kept the game going.
1: Right, but it confuses everybody. It confuses outsiders. I've seen that in uh, – I've heard of that in drug dealing groups. Everybody has a nickname or something. They never use their real names. And the worst part is
0: when you add in the unreliability of witness statements, mm-hmm. you know, um, when you add to that, when you add in the fake name, which is the name of a real person, but who obviously wasn't there, and then you get bad descriptions of these people because of whatever poor lighting or whatever circumstance, it makes it so hard to figure out who's who. Um, there are a couple incidents in New Orleans where Oswald is alleged to have been somewhere with a, with a husky-looking Latin, um, who normally I would apply that to being William Seymour and Lawrence Howard, but um, the timing doesn't fit, uh, and there's other odd circumstances. So I'm trying to figure out who some of these other people were who were with, obviously, Carrie Thornley down in New, in New Orleans, uh, who obviously gave fake names and who matched the descriptions of other people. That's another thing that they did. When you look at a list of David Ferry's associates, all of them were young. Uh, they were white males, mostly. They were, you know, tall, thin, lanky, to where their descriptions are interchangeable, right? So if you're working with five guys, and all of them are five foot nine, 140 pounds with light brown hair, good luck figuring out which one of the of the gang is actually doing it. And that was all part of their trade craft that they were right.
1: oswald met ferry when he was 15 years old it's incredible so it was with right. the civil air patrol and right. they may have had a sexual relationship i don't know if anybody's proved that but ferry was a pre like a boy predator a sexual predator yeah, in,
0: some of the, in the David Ferry files, there's actually there's some graphic descriptions of things that he did to some of the boys who testified to the to the state because he got in trouble. He was a pilot for Eastern Airlines for like over ten years, and then he was weird yeah. as
1: heck. He was into hypnotism. He was a traveling yeah. monk or something in this weird
0: okay, so religion. So let me let me comment on that real quick. He was um yeah, because so he was a, a Catholic priest, but he got. Kicked Defrock. out because he got defrocked because he was a pervert and he was banging little kids. Um, actually, it wasn't little kids. He liked young boys, twelve to like fifteen was like his preference. So he had a uh, compulsion. Somebody's described he yeah.
1: was a compulsive.
0: He couldn't help himself. And man. so boy, boy, uh, he was connected to uh he was connected to a guy named uh, a Catholic priest who was based out of Atlanta called Hyde, and Hyde was connected to this whole network of uh, Catholic churches. And basically, what I've concluded is that the the investigators found out that Hyde who he'd been talking to was actually not associated with any of the known Catholic churches and that um Garrison pretty much had determined that the this this ring of Catholic churches that he was associated with and David Ferry was associated with was actually just a front for child trafficking and the CAP mm. and the airports were being used for multiple purposes. Child right. trafficking, one of them. I mean, and why
1: Ferry was, was known to fly out of the country. He was kind of like an Epstein before Epstein, flying around different jurisdictions with boys, yes. young boys. Yep. And, and he, Oswald's he right been there been in the mix. America. And there's a story of yeah. Oswald too That's coming back. I think from training, and spending a short amount of time back in New Orleans for radio training, and possibly getting meeting back up with Ferry again.
0: Well, here's the thing. Uh, this is where I'm at in my in my research, and this is the hard stuff. I am trying to determine if the person that we know as Oswald ever interacted with uh, Ferry on that level. And I, I think he did, but I can't say that with certainty. I can tell you with absolute certainty, Oswald interacted with Clay Shaw because uh, we have Clay Shaw going to Oswald's aunt's house um, after he had moved to Dallas, right? So Clay Shaw came around looking for Oswald, at Oswald's aunt's house, so we know for yeah. fact that Oswald had been in contact with Clay Shaw. Um, we also, um, we also know that Carrie Thornley had been in, in contact with Oswald because we have uh, uh, Carrie Thornley's like girlfriend at the time was adamant to Garrison and other investigators that yes, Carrie Thornley was really close with Oswald. Um, so I know that uh, Clay Shaw and uh, and uh, Carrie Thornley were in contact with Oswald. You know, probably David Ferry, but I haven't been able to make that statement conclusive as of yet. But I, I can tell you this, you can reference Walter Herp's book because so he has them placed with
1: Oswald in a car with Ferry and Shaw. Oh, you're talking, about, you're,
0: you're talking about Clinton, Louisiana. No, that was definitely not Oswald. And I'll tell you okay. why it wasn't Oswald. Okay. So um and this is funny that somebody actually would write that up that that actually was Oswald. And the reason for that is. Because when you dig into the individual statements that led to that incident, um, it it clearly shows that Oswald was driving a car. And Oswald, that we know as Oswald, never drove a car. There's not a single person on the planet who can put Oswald behind the wheel. Um, And so we have all these statements of people. So the reason that he went to Clinton in the first place was because Oswald was going to register to vote. Now, why was Oswald wanting to register to vote? Well, obviously, there was some kind of CIA attempt to get uh, an employee into the mental health facility at Jackson, Louisiana. Right. All right. So, um, what happens is, and I believe it was Kerry Thornley. Uh, so I'm going to refer to him as such. Thornley goes to a barber just outside of Clinton. I forget what town it is. He starts talking to the guy, uh, the barber at uh, at the barber shop. He starts talking to him about this um, uh, this loony bin right in, in Jackson, the mental health facility in Jackson. And the barber tells him that if he wants to get a job there, it would be best if he got a reference from somebody who is like high up in the city council. And he said, I'm good friends with so-and-so, the city council person. You should go talk to him and see if he'll give you a reference to get the job at uh, at Jackson. And so this person does that. Um, witnesses say that he left from the barbershop where the barber said he never really needed a haircut in the first place. Uh, he leaves from there and he drives over to this like city councilman person. I forget the guy's name offhand. And he talks to him and he says to him, I really like to get to know you. I want to get to know, you know, I would like to get a reference from you to get a job at this Jackson mental hospital. And the guy says, well, it really wouldn't be in my best interest to um, give you a reference. If you're not one of my constituents, meaning if you can't cast a vote for me, why should I give you a reference? And so that is why he ended up going to try to register to vote in Clinton. But, um, at all of these events, other than the Clinton event, um, this Oswald is described as driving a car, right? Multiple descriptions. One of them is a brown station wagon. One of them is a black, older model vehicle. Another one is uh, a two-tone blue and white Chevy. So uh, one thing about these spies, like uh, between Ruth Payne and uh, Clay Shaw, they, they rotate vehicles. They might own a certain vehicle, but you'll see four or five different vehicles parked at their place for long periods of time. They're obviously... Exchanging vehicles with people in their circle, right? So, um, but yeah, every single one of those incidents uh, has uh, somebody driving a car and Oswald never drove. And why did Oswald never drive? That's a damn good question, um, which hopefully I'll answer in one day, but I can tell you with certainty that that Clinton event was not Oswald. That's not
1: real. Gary You're saying that's not real. Yeah, interesting.
0: yeah. None of it, not a single event that anyone thinks Oswald did, did Oswald do. None. It's all. Menu. So you
1: don't. You're not even placing Oswald at Cap. You're not placing Oswald.
0: Well, no, we play all these people. We, we can place him at Cap because we have the photo. Okay. So, but there's when you dig into, was he really a member or was he just hanging out that day? That opens up a whole nother can of worms. There's Do not you accept
1: of, that he's friends with Bannister and hanging out in? Uh, at that building, whatever the – no I can't remember it him. So I, I am just –
0: I'm starting to come to the realization that that was not him either because you had Carrie Thornley who was all kinds of up in these operations with these guys who was often mistaken for Oswald. So, so they just called I, Thornley Oswald. They exactly. had an
1: incentive to do that. Exactly. Why – and a lot of other researchers, they don't emphasize Thornley as much as in my understanding. Maybe I haven't looked or read through their stuff as much. Like, what's the story with Thornley? What's his background? What's his intel? I mean, he has a lame Wikipedia
0: page, but I don't know that much about his history. There's not much about him prior to 59 when he joins the Marines. And it seems like from the time he joins the Marines, him and Oswald are... This, This conflicting information, once again, you know, some say they were really tight. Some people say they never saw them together. But, you know, we have all kinds of conflicting information about when Oswald is in the Marines, right? So... There are duplicate sets of like certain classes that he was in and certain, uh, you know, what his brigade was and all this stuff. I mean, there's John Armstrong did a great job of finding, you know, that there were two sets of uh, class numbers for when he went to the for the foreign language school at like Monterey or wherever it was. Um and when Thornley um, yeah. went to it or Oswald? No, both. 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 Yes. Um, it seems as though Thornley was kind of shadowing Oswald. And when you're in the Marines, you don't get to pick where you go. Right, so obviously he was being moved around. He was in at least shadowing Oswald.
1: How what's the likelihood of two guys ending up at that sugi again
0: at the same time? Exactly. Um
1: infinitesimal. It just doesn't make any sense.
0: yeah, and then there's another guy drawn into it named Heindel, H E I N D E L L, who Garrison talks to. Um, who I I put in Dallas on the on the twenty-fourth when Oswald gets shot. Um, And he was at Atsugi also. So there was some major stuff going on at Atsugi. You know, there was some testimony that was brought forward in executive session during the House Committee on Assassinations. I I can't remember the person's name, but they came forward and said that they were part, uh, they were an an accountant um, in Atsugi, but their job as an accountant was to just distribute funds. And most of the time the funds were distributed under what are called cryptonyms or code names, right? And so- This guy comes forward and testifies in executive session. All the transcript is on John Armstrong's website. And he said that he had been uh, distributing money to a cryptonym called RxZim. R-X-Z-I-M. And later, he is told by the person that he is distributing the envelopes to with the money in it that he had been distributing money to the Oswald Project or possibly to Oswald directly. So... This, I, I don't know what to think of. I mean, it's it's real. It was testified to. Um, I'm sure it has some truth to it, but how much truth to it, I I, I can't say. But there is evidence that would make sense because if you had a bunch of people who were involved in setting up Oswald over a period of three or four years, you know, starting in, uh, in 1959, you would have to have infrastructure. You would have to have people getting paid. You'd have to have an accountant paying them. So the story makes sense to me. Um, I just can't is say Is John sure.
1: Armstrong still around? Is he still a researcher?
0: You know, I think he's still alive. I don't think he's active anymore. Um, and reading his work is is, is both, uh, it's, it's amazing and frustrating at the same time because of his short-sightedness on limiting the number of people who were impersonating Oswald to those, just those two. When it was obvious there were a ton more. But yeah, so I think the most important people that people should start to focus on are Lawrence Howard, William Seymour, and Lauren Hall. All three of those guys, I put them in the book depository. I put Sergio Arcacha-Smith on the roof of the depository uh, where they did find a Mauser rifle. A Mauser rifle was recovered on the roof of the depository after the assassination. And I think you uh, said the,
1: in your li- your interview with uh, Forbidden Knowledge News, there were five rifles
0: found. Correct.
1: Uh, um, the I've identified five
0: right. rifles. So you have, the, you have the Carcano that was recovered. You have the Mauser 7.65 that was recovered in the fifth floor stairwell. You have the Mauser that was on top of the book depository. Um, you have another rifle. It's a Johnson .30-06 that was linked to Lauren Hall uh, through pawn records from, uh, from a guy out in L.A. named Richard Hathcock, who had basically uh, a rifle had been pawned to him. It was a Johnson .30-06. Lauren Hall, about a month before the assassination, came and picked up the rifle. And then it was later linked to him because it was found the next day in Dealey Plaza by the lawn crew. Um, and then you have the subject being arrested in Willis Photo 10. Uh, when you look at Willis Photo 10, is clearly a man dressed all in black being arrested uh, directly in front of the book depository. He's got a bunch of cops swarming around him. And in the background, you can see one of the cops, and he's holding, to me, what appears to be a rifle. It's got a long barrel. I haven't been able to identify that rifle either, but to me, that makes rifle number five that was confiscated in Dealey Plaza uh, that day.
1: Oh, that's incredible. Uh, I, that's, I, some, conf- of those co- some of those cops had the Klan badges on, too. Yeah. He pointed that out. It was a yep. really a different time. Oh, yeah. I mean, Dallas, oh, yeah. Texas has a, um, there's an underground, there's like a subtext of real violence in that state. I've, I've lived in Texas. Um, and so pretty rough, yeah. Pretty rough.
0: Everything we've been discussing has been pretty much um, explainable via typical CIA tradecraft, okay? Just typical spy techniques that they use to hide their uh, their active their, their operations in order to create plausible deniability. We haven't discussed in any way, shape or form uh, some of the ritual or occult aspects uh, of the assassination, which I uncover and is in my seven hour presentation. Um, It's not overly YouTube safe, so I won't talk about it much. But uh, when you get about two hours into my presentation, I lay out something about the Kennedy assassination that will just blow your mind. And most people won't even believe it when they see it. But there is most certainly a ritualistic occult aspect to the assassination and how it was, how it took place on November 22nd, uh, that will just change the way people see the world. Are you a
1: believer of the proponent of, I think it's uh, Shelby Downard and Hoffman? They talk about the three. J-E, it's not Jews, but J-E-W-E-S, the Masonic three that walk into. Them. So to that three,
0: that means that the tramps were like a symbol for all the masons. They would have known. Oh, oh, oh! You know, I don't and think so because when you talk, you want to talk about the tramps. So I've identified the tramps as um, Leo Mosseri, a guy named Leo Lips Mosseri, uh Danny Green, the Irishman, and uh, Vincent Caltegarone Jr., who was the cousin of Mary Boots Roberts who ran the Winterland. Um, and uh, I, I, I give out my explanation in that, in the seven hour video, if you guys want to watch it, but no, the way these guys were caught, they were caught by chance. They weren't caught. They wasn't, they weren't set up to be caught. Uh, they tried to fork off some other bums as the three tramps, like, uh, John Forrester Gedney and those guys. Uh, but those guys were just real bums and the real bums were arrested at 1235 immediately after the assassination at one fifty six a call goes out over the radio. Lee Bowers, a tower man. he. Um, he calls the cops and he says that he sees on a train that's just now leaving, he sees three men jumping at the ninth boxcar. Okay, so the first set of tramps are pulled out of a boxcar with a sliding door. This time they stop the train. The cops go out there and they pull three guys out of a car filled with grain. The car was mo- the train was moving mostly coal and grain. They were laying down on top of a huge pile of grain. Um, and so when they came over, when the cops came over the top, they were right there and they were busted. Um, so they are picked up at 156 in less than an hour. Those guys are funneled out the back door, never to be heard from again. So, but when you Danny Green is a fascinating character. When you study Danny Green, you look into Danny Green's life. The thing that tipped me off to him being one of the tramps. Um, actually, I'll, I'll even show a picture on this one. Let me see okay, if I do, you wanna, do you want
1: to do you want to put that slide up? I can get get this. It's really
0: Yes, yeah, so... Um,
1: <clears throat> the other JFK researcher, before I forget, his name was Joe Green. So I forgot to mention uh-huh. him, too. So I've done an interview with him.
0: So this is Danny Green. And one of the things that tipped me off was he has this really unique curl in the front of his head right there. But the reality is when you study the life of Danny Green, Danny Green was a... Um, he was a sniper trainer in the Marines. Okay. So he enters the Marines like 17 years old um, in, within a year or two. He's a sniper trainer, which means he's this elite as, as a sniper. All right. I put him as one of the shooters behind the pergola, but I can't, I don't have any information on whether he actually pulled the trigger or not. So Danny green is a relative. Nobody he's an Irishman, but he's working for James Licavoli and Leo Masseri in Cleveland. And so immediately after the assassination, um, he has this like meteoric rise to power uh, as the head of the Longshoremen Union in Cleveland. Now that's a big politically, that's a heavy, that's a heavy hitter position, uh, especially when you're dealing with the Cleveland mob. So, out of nowhere, Danny Green, who's a sniper trainer, just after the assassination, and nobody's ever heard of this guy until then. Then all of a sudden, he becomes the head of the Longshoremen in Cleveland, and then he has this like meteoric rise to where he eventually goes on to fight the other guys in the Cleveland mob to try to make his own, like, Irish mob, right? So the only thing that made sense about any of that is if he was involved with Kennedy. And then I find these pictures showing he's got the same exact unique curl right in the front of his head. And clearly, that's Danny Green. So the old tramp uh, I determined was Leo Masseri, who was Danny Green's immediate boss at the time, okay? And then uh, you have this picture here of Vincent Caltegarone Jr., Vincent Caltegrone Jr. This picture is actually from like 59. It's a couple years before. And this picture on the right has been tampered with. If you look at the eyes, you can see that there's been some shenanigans going on there. Um, But yeah, Vincent Caltegrone Jr. was the short tramp and Danny Green. I have as the tall tramp and Leo Masseri as the old tramp.
1: And you're saying Vincent Caltegrone is Raul. Vincent Caltegrone is Raul.
0: Correct. And the reason, the way I was able to put that together is besides having gone over every single freaking description of Raul, um, There was a woman whose name was Glenda. Glenda Grabo, I believe is her name. And Glenda Grabo, she gets tied up in this thing. She ends up becoming a witness. I don't think for Garrison, but she gave her story, I think, to Weisberg and a couple other people where she knew Raul and she knew him as both Raul and a guy named Dago. And Dago had made some comments to her that he killed Kennedy and that he killed Martin Luther King, too, and that he'd do it again if he had to. Um, And then also... Uh, in the same breath, he makes a statement about wanting to make a million dollars with Jack Valente. Now, back in the 19, early 1970s or late 1960s, Jack Valente, even though he was the head of the Motion Picture Association of America, he wasn't the talk of the town. He wasn't somebody that people discussed. you know. And the way that he had, the way that um, Dago had said he wanted to make a million bucks with Jack Valente, that to me told me that he knew Jack Valente, right? And so when you look once again, revert back to our cast of characters. You have James Earl Ray identifying the Short Tramp as Raul. I then identify the Short Tramp as Vincent CaltaGaron Jr. And then I realized Vincent Caltegrone Jr. is the former brother-in-law, uh, an obvious spotter for Jack Valente, who I put on the grassy knoll. And I believe there is also a chance that Jack Valente is the actual person who pulled the trigger on Martin Luther King because of the association to Raul. I mean, when you understand these mob guys, they had like a They had a spotter or a guy who was with them every time. Uh, When you look at like Lenny Patrick and Dave Yarris, these guys were lifelong partners on hits and Dave Yaris lived in Miami and Lenny Patrick lived in Chicago, but wherever the hit was, the two of them were because they knew they could trust each other. They had each other's back. I believe that was the relationship between Jack Valenti and Vincent CalteGaron Jr. And to me that indirectly links Jack Valenti to the uh, Martin Luther King assassination. Also, Jack Valenti was traveling. He's normally based out of D.C. He ran Hollywood from D.C. If that doesn't tell you who runs Hollywood, so but he was traveling at the time that Martin Luther King was shot. So you know, I, I still need—I admit—I need to do a lot more research on this. But my <laughs> my gut tells me that Jack Valenti shot Martin Luther King as well as. Uh, but
1: Valenti Jack. was super tight with Johnson. I, th- I can't remember what his relation. That's he was either head of staff or some very high up.
0: That's another interesting thing because, uh, so Valenti and Johnson knew each other going back to 1956. They unquestionably had uh, a sexual relationship of some form.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: Um, Jack Valenti is most certainly gay. Uh, When you look at the timing and the circumstances surrounding his marriage to Mary Margaret Wiley, Mary Margaret Wiley was Johnson's longtime uh, secretary when he was vice president and even back further when he was in like the Texas house, Right. And so that was really the love of his life. And so the story about, um, what's her name? Margaret Brown or whatever her name is, who said that they went to the Murchison Mansion meeting, you know, that is complete bogus. She's a fraud and a liar. That meeting never happened. I have no evidence that that meeting ever happened. Uh, So everything she said- Valenti married that girl to cover up the fact that that they had- She was pregnant, pregnant. right? And so uh, the child is born named Courtney Valenti, but really it's Lyndon Johnson's daughter. Uh, It's unquestionably Lyndon Johnson's daughter. And when you, if you Google Lyndon Johnson, Courtney Valente, you'll find hundreds of pictures of him hugging her and holding her and all this stuff. And that'd be a little creepy if it wasn't your daughter, you know? So, but yes, um, the relationship with them goes back to 56. um, But Jack Valente was most certainly a CIA agent. I have documentation Mm -hmm. showing because he gets a job in the White House on November 22nd, 1963. Um, I believe his role, his involvement in the assassination of president Kennedy was kind of like, a his, um, rite of passage, so to speak, because made he said, right. He made his bones. He a lot of these the guys did right. You say green did too. A lot of these green guys all
1: got benefits by doing it and shutting up.
0: Yep. Um, so Jack Valente, he sends the letter to Kennedy, inviting him to Texas. He started the whole thing in the first place. Then, um, he is in charge of the Albert Thomas dinner and setting up all the events that Kennedy was supposed to be at and doing the bookings for like the Texas hotel where Kennedy stayed. That was all Jack Valente. Jack Valente was in charge of every last bit of that. Um, then when you read uh, Jack Valente's statements on where he was that day that he gave over 40 years, the guy never gave the same story twice. He says he was everything from the third to the sixth, to the eighth, to the 14th, to the 24th car in line. Doesn't remember where he was. The people who he says that he was with, who were um, Evelyn Lincoln uh, and Pamela Tonor, they don't ever mention Valenti in any of their statements. Uh, So all of the statements about where he was are totally conflicting. And then after, let me see here, I'm gonna show one picture here. Uh, And this to me was, I had my suspicions that he was a shooter on the knoll because I've linked him to other possible assassinations of political leaders down in South America, still working on that stuff. But I find this picture here, Let me share this.
1: Uh... It's interesting because I remember as a kid, there would be, let me pull that up. There would be Valenti would come out on stage either during the Oscars or something where, and he would give a little talk and walk off, but he was always, the came out with authority. It's very curious that he would come out during these award shows.
0: So this picture here is the Secret Service car as it's leaving from Dealey Plaza, but the two guys who are on the passenger side side of the car standing on it that's jack valente and david morales plain and simple that's who that is um and And they're leaving deeply after the assassination or before yes that's after kennedy was just hit i'll go over the series of events uh that happened so here you have kennedy shot right and he this is clint hill and he's up on the back of the president's limousine okay if you'll notice the car in front of his um, has its brake lights on. Okay. That's the lead car and it's got, uh, Decker and Forrest Sorrels and, uh, you know, a couple guys from the police department or secret service, whatever in that car, they are breaking. They are most certainly in on this. Um, when you look here and you read, um, what exactly happened with who was running to and forth on the, from the, from the secret service car to the limousine, this contradicts the Zapruder film, right? So um, multiple people ran up and back to the limousine and then back to the secret service car. So that was completely covered up. Um, So what you have here is you see now the lead car that was breaking is being passed by the president's limousine, okay? There are photo shenanigans going on here, and I'm still trying to determine uh, what exactly they are, but Clint Hill's position on the car doesn't make any any sense whatsoever. Um, so you can see that the president's limousine is leaping around the lead car. All right, that's one pass. But then the very next photograph, which is almost immediately after, you've got the lead car now leaping around the limousine once again. Right. So the lead car is jumping the, the limousine is jumping the lead car. And then, and then the lead, lead car is now jumping the limousine. The this is like a game of leapfrog that they're playing that also um, is not some in some of the video footage, footage of the of limousine line. speeding away. I think some, I think some of, the of the video footage that they used that, they used, that, was, recorded, that was recorded the next, next two like two days later, they did a re-enactment. reenactment. I think I think, I think, they, think that's that's they put that some, some of that reenactment footage, footage into into some of the original footage cover-up things. So when you look closely at this picture, this is also what I see. I'm crazy, just tell me. So when you zoom in on that picture. picture, what you what you now have, have is a person. On the left side, side, side of the car has a flat flat top. Okay, okay. And there's only there's only person person there. there. There should there should be two people, be people there. there. Corey, people people there. Corey
1: I don't market. know what's happening, but there's a delay coming through your mic or something like that when you're talking. I don't know if it's going out to the audience, but it's coming through. Is it, it, is it yeah. Can you close close that um, program and then talk? Maybe it's a i don't say something. Okay. Is that better? No. Something happened to your mic. I don't know what it is. just like. How's that? How's I, that? Any better, no, any no, It's like your mic just, just fried or something. Come back in. Log out. Come back in. I'll bring it back in. Yeah, I'll have to republish or repost all my JFK interviews because I've done a lot. Um, Joe. Uh, How's that? Is that better? Better, yeah. Okay, Just got better. Weird. Sorry. Bring up those those pictures again of Valenti, if you can.
0: Yeah. Okay, so here we have one person on each side of the car. Now, if you go back and you look at who is actually supposed to be on the side of the car, you're talking about John D. Jack Reedy and you're talking about Paul E. Landis. This is them right here. Okay. Um, They're two white guys. They're both about the same height, about 5'11". And then if you scan forward, you'll find there's this like floating head that I can't figure out where it's attached to. Um, It's got a flat top and glasses, but this head does not make any sense. Um, Normally, I would think it's somebody hanging on to the president's car, but it's not. Um, I can't understand the physics of why this head is there, but it's a head of a shadow. It looks like a shadow that has a flat top and glasses on, right? So let's go back to this picture here. There were two people on the side of the car. Now there's only one, okay? Okay. And this person right here who's holding, looks. this is actually um, um, John D. Jack Reedy. He's now in the back seat of the limousine and he's pulled out the AR-15 that they had stashed in the car, right? So the only people that you're seeing on the outside of the car right now is this one person on the left. That is it. Now, when you look at the president's limousine, it appears to me that there is a man with a black or dark jacket and a black or dark hat standing in the back of the limousine and i would say that this is not clint hill if you look at the upper edge of the windshield of the limousine on the right side you will see a head hanging over the side of the car i believe that is clint hill and he's on top of jackie at this point okay so you have another person who, to me, appears to be standing in the back seat, and they are holding something that is blocking the windshield of the Secret Service car behind them. If you can see here, this appears to be their arm going out this way, and it appears that they're holding something long in their hands. I concluded this must be a man holding a rifle in the back seat of the president's limo. Is there? Can you see that as being anything else? I ask this to everybody because if this is, if I'm crazy then I'm fucking crazy, but I don't think so. This looks like a man wearing a black jacket and a black hat standing in the back of the president's limo holding a rifle. That's what it looks like to me. There's some kind of thing coming across at a 45 degree angle. Correct, right, so, right here, so, something, Yeah, yeah right? So. But, um, but the more important yeah. thing is that there's only one person on the left side of the car. This is only one person on the left side of the Secret Service car, one, okay? okay. But then when we jump to this picture, now you have two people on the side of the Secret Service car, and one of them is Jack Valente. The other one is David Morales. Um, as soon as I saw this picture, and it was just obvious. It, it, I didn't even have to do like any facial compare or nothing. I know both these guys, David Morales and Jack Valente. And if the flat top and glasses is this guy here, okay? And he was this guy who got the floating head here in Daily Plaza, then he's not a shooter, right? And that right. leaves Jack Valente right there. He's only five foot four. Dave Morales is only five foot nine. Two short guys. That is a far stretch, from these two who are supposed to be on the Secret Service car. That is not John D. Jack Reedy, and it is not Paul e. Landis. Therefore, I've concluded Jack Valente was the grassy knoll shooter. What he did was he came over the top of the knoll. Then they did this game of leapfrog to obfuscate what they were doing and to give the limousine an excuse to slow down. As the limousine slowed down, Jack Valente hops into the back of the limousine, and then they do the leapfrog again at which time Jack Valenti hops out of the limousine and goes to the side of the Secret Service car. And then they pull off um, uh, from there and they go to Parkle. Now, if you'll notice, look in the front seat. There are only two people in the front seat. There is, um, let me see. What are these guys' names again? Uh, Emery Roberts and Samuel Kinney, okay? Emery Roberts is driving. Samuel Kinney is up against the side of the car. But then when you go to the next photograph, There are three people in the front seat. You have Samuel Kinney driving, Emery Roberts up against the far side of the car, and you have Valenti in the middle. Now you have a third person in the front seat of the Secret Service car. That's not on any of the documentation. There's Clint Hill hanging over the side. There's John D. Jack Reedy still in the back seat. And here's Landis now back on the outside of the car with his rounded haircut, right? So you see, see, uh, Paul, uh, Paul E. Landis had his rounded haircut, right? But see, now Landis is back on the outside of the car reedy is still in the back seat holding the ar-15 and now you have three people in the front seat okay? okay that that is how i concluded jack valenti was the grassy knoll shooter and he did it by coming over the top of the knoll and then everything that i just explained so when you let me talk a little bit more about valenti when you go into valenti's background Um, This is a great memo. Uh, This is the proof that he was CIA the whole time. This is December 12, 63. Um, This is a memo to uh, Mr. Moore from C.D. DeLoach. This is all FBI stuff. Uh, Walter Jenkins called me from the White House at 1240 p.m. today. He mentioned that the president planned to move several people in federal agencies over on the White House payroll. Captioned individual is one of these people. So Jack Valente was at work for a federal agency. And he had to have his payrolls transferred to the White House. Right. So what, Johnson, right. right, right. So what federal agency could he possibly be working? Where he was running a, uh, a, a, a a PR shop, you know, an advertising firm out of Houston. Only the CIA, okay. Only the CIA. Um, then when you dig further into him, you find that he's definitely connected to two mob families. He was born into the DeGeorge family, and he was born into the Valenti family. The Valenti family is connected to Frank Valenti, and is in Tampa. And ultimately, I trace the Valenti family roots to having been under the control of Traficante in Tampa, uh, going back to like the assassination of Mayor Anton Cermak back in like 1933. Um, So I'm going to skip over some of this. Um, When you look at when Jack Valenti got his security clearance, he never had a security clearance when he worked in the White House. But as soon as he left and went to the MPAA, um, he got a lifetime clearance, right? They never terminated his, uh, his clearance at all. And so let me see what else is there. Um, this is just more information that shows that um, he allegedly from 66 to 69, besides being the head of the MPAA, he was made like um, press secretary. Okay. But he never worked any days. Like he never did the job. Which That's
1: a super suspicious. Super
0: suspicious. Yeah. So
1: he's getting paid not showing up to work.
0: Correct. That sounds like Correct. a classic mob thing too. And then a lot um, of which
1: bleeds over to politics, too.
0: Oh, yes, for sure. And then you have like a Triscornia. Triscornia was like a prison down in Cuba, but it was like a you know, when Castro locked, locked up his mob guys, he, you know, he didn't want to push the boat. He put them in a place that like people could come and go. It was kind of like a I don't know, it was more like a day camp than a, than a, than a jail. But um, McWillie, who was an associate of Jack Ruby, connected to all these uh, mob guys, he goes down there and he meets with a guy named uh, Giuseppe de George, Giuseppe De DeGeorge. Um, Jack Valenti, his father's name was uh, Giuseppe Valenti, and his mother's name was Josephine DeGeorge, so I'm pretty sure that the Giuseppe De Georges that McWillie went to go meet with in Triscornia was, in fact, Jack Valenti. Um, let me see. Uh, this was another interesting one. This one, I'm not sure what to think of, but to me, this is kind of what... I had a, a hunch about this, and this is, I believe, a, a, a coded message in a police report. So Valenti takes a, a flight. This is like a before Johnson is out of office or maybe immediately after. But he goes on a flight. He's, a, he's on the board of directors of TWA. He's on the board of directors of the YMCA, right? So uh, he can fly and he can go and stay places without it being on the record. Um, so he, he, he flies on TWA flight. He puts some stuff in a bag into. The, in the, he checks his luggage. And then he files a police report saying that some of the stuff was missing. Okay. But when I dug into what was missing, none of it made any sense. It says the following items were missing from his suitcase: one pair of five-eighth inch in diameter cufflinks of the president, given to him by President Lyndon Johnson; one pair of six-eighth inch uh, diameter cufflinks with presidential seal, given by President Lyndon Johnson; Omega watch with a red sweep hand and dark dial, uh, which doesn't exist. I asked the watch expert; he cannot, he could not think of one going back to the 1950s that had that description. One pair of tortoiseshell sunglasses; one Panasonic battery-operated rechargeable shaver. Valenti stated that none of the items were identifiable. However, the two cufflink sets would not be in normal circulation as they contain the presidential seal. So Lyndon Johnson is alleged to have had a hit list of eight people on it. And I need to do some more digging into this. But here, when he's talking about five-eighths inch and 6 8 inch diameter cufflinks, these cufflinks don't exist, okay? These cufflinks don't exist. That watch description doesn't exist. This is a coded message of some sort, and this is kind of what tipped me off to the fact that Valenti was involved as more than just an aide to Johnson. Right. Interesting, so right? So they're
1: talking in coded language, sending signals to each
0: other. Right. And knowing that it was knowing that Lyndon Johnson was being mentioned in a police report, he knew the Secret Service would route this, this report to Johnson himself, right? So he didn't have to send a message to Johnson. All he had to do was file the police report, and he knew the police report would make its way back to Johnson. That's kind of how that works. So
1: that's how they communicated. Wow, that's
0: amazing. Right. And so then um, when you really dig into Jack Valente and you dig into the film JFK and also the men who killed Kennedy, what you'll find is that Jack Valente was actually um, behind and part of the production of JFK and the men who killed Kennedy. However, when both of them came out, um, he came out railing against them, saying that they're propaganda and, and, and to hell with this. You know, what was he doing? He was creating a stink. So people would go and see it. And it laid the blame at the feet of Lyndon Johnson, which he knew was not true. Wow. Yeah, pretty crazy, huh? Um, wow,
1: and he's featured in this picture. There's oh wow, this is amazing. I'm gonna I'm gonna put put this one up.
0: Yeah. So um, Valenti, Pretty behind sure. the scenes with the executives of NBC, Hearst Corp, Walt Disney, which owns A&E Network's program for the History Channel that portrayed Johnson as the killer of JFK. It was aired on the 40th anniversary of JFK's murder, November 2003. Valenti, with treacherous ill will, now ensconces himself as a friend of LBJ. He joins with Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter and Lady Bird Johnson, wanting a probe of uh, the allegations of the guilty men uh, that LBJ killed uh, JFK. So, yeah, so he was behind the production of these things. This is a quote from Gary Ween, who wrote a book called There's a Fish in the Courthouse. Um, That that was probably the first book about Kennedy, Kennedy's assassination, Uh, maybe beside Mark Lane's book. But it focused more on like the L.A. corruption in Hollywood and stuff like that.
1: You can see Valenti on the plane when Johnson's being sworn in, sitting down, staring at him.
0: Yes, he sure is. I have that picture. I got that picture right here, too. too. Let me see if I can find that one.
1: Um. Remarkable, Adam. Yeah.
0: Oh, okay, let me just show this picture real quick. Like this picture of Jack Ruby in the hallway at the police department. It's not Jack Ruby. That's Samuel Ruby. That's why everyone argues over the whole thing. Um, let me see. He, he if... looks similar to Jack Ruby. Similar, but
1: similar features.
0: But you him. can tell it. You can tell it's not him. Yeah.
1: That's
0: but no other researcher has ever even brought up uh, Samuel Ruby in any of their books or research or nothing. Like the guy doesn't exist. Um, huh. Maybe I don't have, Corey, that I got to pretty
1: much wrap it up in the next five minutes. How do you want to sure. end this? What do you, what do you want to do? Guide people to your podcast uh, website and videos and stuff like
0: that. Yeah. So, um, go to Coryhues.org. from there, you will find, uh, if you click on the Kennedy section, you will find three videos. The only one you need to watch because two of them are outdated, um, is called a warning from history and it's available on Odyssey. It's seven hours long and it goes into much greater detail than uh, than anything I've talked about here today. So there's a lot of things I wish I could have talked about but the this just take it would take hours. Well you so. can
1: come back anytime. Maybe we could schedule awesome.
0: something for June but uh oh, really I I'm, I'm working on my book. I've probably got 100 pages written. I'm hoping to have that done by July. Um, one thing I did do because I'm kind of broke is I set up a buy me a coffee. Anybody goes to buy me a coffee slash forbidden and um, makes a donation, they'll get access to a whole bunch of my research and uh, a chat room. They can discuss the assassination with me and all, all kinds of stuff. So, Great. Um, so they either can one check of those. that out on your website. Buy me a coffee. For yeah, a definitely.
1: Website. Do you have a working title for your book? Uh, it's called "A Warning from History." So the same as the documentary.
0: Correct, correct.
1: Well, really fascinating research. I've never seen any, some of the stuff. So it's kinda, yeah, you kind, you of kind
0: of- Yeah, that was kind of a frustration. Context. That was a point of frustration for me is that a lot of things I was discovering, nobody had ever seemingly put two and two together on and it didn't seem like it was rocket science. So-
1: Well, you've done a great job. So I really appreciate you sharing and I appreciate your Thank time. You. So it's Corey Hughes and you want to go to his website at coreyhughes.org and I'll put that in the show notes for people who are listening through the podcast. So you can just click on that and check out uh, his stuff. And also the, the interview that I uh, listened to, which was Forbidden News. Right, so right. That was kind of the basis of, of the leaping off point of this discussion. So Corey Hughes, thank you so much for your time. Hey, thank you. Appreciate Take it. Take care. Take care. Stay there. Stay there.